Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven. We're changing the world their way. Our guest this week is Rostra Bandare. For three months, he lived in the Himalayan mountains, studying how the water crisis impacted the communities living there. The region provides water to over two and a half billion people. And with more ice melting from climate change, there are emerging geopolitical tensions between superpowers like China and India. While the water crisis represents a challenge, it also presents an opportunity for us to collaborate through nature, a medium that all of us are connected to. Before we listen to this week's conversation, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live, Rasta Bandari. Welcome to Why It Matters. Uh, thanks, Luke. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to get into a topic that, about water, which is something that I think people, you know, in certain parts of the world, they go over to the, the sink and they, they flip open the turn it on, whatever it may be, and they get a glass of water. And today it's something that not a lot of people think about in terms of their everyday lives. It's just something that's there and it's something that's been there for hundreds of years, showers and stuff like that. But we're at a point in time right now where there's an inflection point and the resource of water is going to change and you're doing work in that space. So very excited to hear from you and learn from the work that you're doing. So to start off, maybe you could give a just brief high-level description of the work that you do. Yeah, no, thanks, Luke. Um, you, you're definitely right. I, I think in, in lo- loads of part of the world, water is definitely taken for granted. But at the same time, there are also societies and many countries where the inflection point is like we've seen several years ago, or you know, like there are societies that struggle with meeting clean what, drinking water. Um, countries are sort of like now scrambling for water resources and and we are in a point where water security and water insecurity are, are big issues and they also touch on other things like gender and, and, and sort of like um, how children are being exploited to sort of look into water issues and stuff right so it's definitely interesting and it's, it's, it's a very wide spectrum of how this particular issue is looked at by different countries and even within the countries, how different regions look at it uh, because it's a very scattered problem, if I may say. Uh, but having said that, yeah, so my name is Rastra. I am from Nepal and most of my work with regards to water has been looking at the Himalayan water issue. And it's the third, well, it's the largest pressure source of fresh water after Antarctica and the Arctic, the two polar regions. And a lot of so literature and, and people call it the third pole for that reason. Uh, it's also the source of fresh water for India and China, as well as the entire South Asia region, which is home to almost one fourth of the world's population. So it's a massive one third to one fourth, right? So it's a massive area that's being covered in terms of population and, and fitting that demand 
and the the source of fresh water is just there. So my work surrounds um, the Himalayan water resource and what's happening with that in the face of climate change. Although I'm not a water expert, so my really background is on climate finance and carbon carbon trading. But this is something I deeply care about because I grew up in the mountains and I'm from there. And it just feels like it's something that everyone needs to talk about a bit more. So I'm part of this research initiative with New York University, Abu Dhabi, uh, looking at the Himalayan water issue, both in terms of geopolitics, but also in terms of ecology and what that means for people. And one last thing that that we have really tried to focus on is also to look at it from a very interdisciplinary lens, right? Because oftentimes it's become a tool for engineers to look at, like water engineering, as opposed to how does the arts and humanities look at water? Like, what does it mean in the the stories of real people on ground. So yeah, so that's, I guess, the synopsis of the work that I'm currently doing. Thank you. That was great, great overview. And I think from there, there's many different things that we can talk about and um, kind of explore and, and pull out and expand and see. Um, I think first thing I would love to hear more about is, so if you're working on a Himalayan water project, what what does that mean? And like, why are you guys studying the Himalayas and the water that lives there? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating question. I think I, I kind of want to step back uh, before yeah. getting the Himalayas, right? Because water, like you earlier pointed out as well, everyone sees water since a very small age and, and water's everywhere. But at the same time, water's nowhere as well, right? And like UNESCO has done studies on this, for example, and the numbers are quite fascinating. So out of like, like all the water in the world, so 97% of water is saline water. So it's salt water, right? So it's only 2.5% of water that's actually fresh water. Uh, And within that 2.5%, you've got 69% of water that's stored in snow and ice. And like 31% of water is groundwater. And then the remaining 0.4% of water is what you see in lakes and rivers. So in terms of the world's fresh water supply, it's quite minimal. So even though we see a lot of water, um, the reality is the water that we have access to in terms of clean drinking water is very low. Within this number, you've got river pollution, you've got water pollution, you've got very intermittent water supply these days, you've got groundwater depletion, right? So when we factor in all these different things, the amount of water we actually have is is very, very insignificant, and especially compared to the, the world demand. And this is not an isolated issue. Um, this is an issue that many parts of the world are facing, including the Himalayan region. And the Himalayan region's interesting for us, for example, for a number of reasons. The first being the magnitude and the scale of the crisis we're going to see there is massive, right? And it's, it's, it's that which makes this problem very interesting is because the magnitude is massive. You've got China and India, the two countries that don't really sort of like look at each other and then sort of work, work out a solution. But then you've got the Himalayas, which you know, like is in the middle um, as the border of these two countries and sandwiched between the two giants is like Nepal, um, where most of the big peaks um, um, are home to, right? So it's very interesting geopolitically in terms of what does water mean in a very geopolitically fraught and tense uh, environment. And then the second thing obviously is, is more with a human and animal um, centric approach in terms of, well, outside of the geopolitics of water, what does it mean for local people who are surviving and whose livelihoods depend on the water? And this ranges from agriculture because water is um, the bread and butter for agriculture. Like water is essential for food security, right? And water is livelihood for everyone. And without water, we're not going to live. 
Um, so, so this is the context, and I think Himalayan region stands out because of the scale and magnitude, but also how it has been a very under-researched area, except for the science beyond climate change and science beyond water security. It's not something you hear out in the Western media. It's not something that a lot of research is focused on. Um, so that was sort of like, you know, like how, well, we thought, you know, this is a very interesting conversation that, that we needed to convene because there's not a lot of conversations happening on that. Definitely. And I think that one thing, as I was doing some research for this episode, one thing I came across was how obviously climate change is here and happening and only going to accelerate with time and how that the Himalayas are a source of fresh water. And the fact that climate change is happening, the Himalayas, I think it was, they're warming at 0.3 to 0.7 degrees Celsius faster than the rest of the world. And that's compounds the issue because because they're such a big source of fresh water, they're melting faster. And so there's more fresh water coming down to the people that live in the region, um, mm -hmm. which I thought was super interesting. And I'd love to hear about first, first almost stakeholder, it seems like this issue is affecting is the people that live in this region. So could you talk about that dynamic and, and why it matters that these people are maybe their communities might be damaged or affected or just what their context looks like. Yeah, this is it's fascinating. And I think um, looking at it from a climate change perspective, um, it's interesting because it, we really need to sort of look into what does water mean, right? And I think it's, it's very misunderstood and water is looked at as a very isolated issue. But sort of the, the, the framework of, and the definition I like to think of when I think of water is there are three types of water, uh, at least when you're talking about fresh water. So you've got groundwater, which is normally and in literature, some people call it a sponge, right? And then you've got like the fresh water and like the rivers, which is like the rivers that flow down from the Himalayan region, which is all these rivers that you see in South Asia are coming from the mountains, right? And the third, which is really ignored, is uh, what some argue as a term to be called sky rivers. So you've got weather patterns, right? So and you've got rain, and you've got clouds, and these are connected with melting in the mountains and the rivers, and all of this is connected with the entire region acting as a sponge and looking at groundwater as an issue. So those three things, um, groundwater, uh, sky rivers, uh, sponge, and rivers in general sort of form the water that we understand uh, in the region. And obviously these three have different impacts, right? So rivers, if you look at South Asia in the past 10 years, every year we're seeing increased intensity of flooding. And hundreds and thousands of people are being dislocated. The economic cost of these floodings are in the millions, if not billions. You look at rainfalls. One of the most underrated climate crises and impact of climate change, or, or as, as development practitioners want to call it, disasters triggered by natural hazards, is landslides. So what's happening is because the sky rivers and the clouds and the monsoon and the precipitation is changing, you're seeing very uneven and very intermittent, as well as very unreliable rainfall patterns. Um, so you're seeing landslides because it rains too much, you're seeing floods because it rains too much, and then it goes en route. So what we're seeing, you know, like, not, is not just sort of drought and water scarcity, but we're also seeing increased impacts and natural disasters uh, and natural hazards triggered by natural disasters because of sort of water. 
you have a very interesting question in terms of what does that mean for local people? And this is something I deeply care about. And in 2018, I spent three months living in the mountains by myself um, oh. just to experience what it means for local people, right? Wow. So I lived in the Tibetan, next to the Tibetan border in Nepal. And, and I lived in this place called Nagao and Bidding, which is um, right in the northeast of Nepal and for people who <laughs> follow Nepal just a bit and know where Everest is, it's right in the west of Everest. So it's the mountains um, right in the west of Everest. And I lived there for three months and what I did was I actually tracked the river. So I started off from the south and then I went to the north and then did vice versa as well and talked to people in the local communities. And what you see is really conflicting information. So of course, they're terrified about floodings. They're terrified about sort of the, the, the impacts, but freshwater for these people in the river communities is not an issue, right? Because you're seeing more melting, which is more water. Um, but the reality is a lot of people there don't think of it in the long term. They're only thinking of it in the short term because they need to have food in their table, right? Mm. Um, but for me, as someone looking at this issue from a very broad lens, increased melting now means more water now for downstream communities, but eventually we're running out of this water because all of the water is being drained into the oceans and it's being a saline water, right? So, so for local people, I think this is a really under-researched field of study in terms of what do local communities think about it. Um, I think a lot of them haven't really understood the long-lasting impacts of climate change and what that means in the long run. But for now, it just seemed as if they're not really as concerned with freshwater resources as opposed to they are with like landslides and floods. However, the story is very different to communities that are further off from rivers, right? Because even within South Asia, even within a country, so you look at places in Pakistan, for example, that are struggling with drought, right? So while river communities and people living there aren't really worried about freshwater, other communities are. So it's just very, it's just very interesting. And I think this is definitely a, an area of research that needs to happen more so we know what, what the on-ground situation is. Definitely. And it's super interesting that you took the time to spend three months in the mountains, which I think, especially in modern day society, three months in the mountains is different than three months in the mountains <laughs> was like a few hundred years ago. Um, I would love to go a little bit more into that experience um, mm -hmm. and kind of learn a bit about your background and, and why, why would you go and spend three months in the mountains? Like what, what was it? And maybe why does, why does this issue matter to you in the first place? Yeah, I know that's that <laughs> that brings back memories, right? So <laughs> so I took two years off after high school before going to university and I just traveled and did research and taught and and um the way I like to say like tried to get connected to nature. And that was also when I had my first experience with climate change because in 2015 and perhaps some of the audience members of your podcast would know there was a massive earthquake in Nepal. And I wasn't in Nepal, I was actually in Australia, and then I really wanted to go back and sort of work there. So what, what, I, what ended up happening was I, I flew back and I had quite some resources that I wanted to mobilize and stuff. So I went with the, a group of aid workers and spent some time near Everest. And that was sort of my first experience of climate change where I was staying in this hotel, like a lodge, and it was right next to the riverbank. And in the evenings, the hotel staff hiked two hours every night uphill um, and it was very confusing because they were locking the doors and they're leaving and i said well, why are you leaving and very awkwardly they said like they were worried that there are these because so what's happening is all these glaciers are melting and not every glacier has an outlet 
right? So there are the glaciers being formed and these glaciers are very susceptible to bursting. And when they burst, they'll create a flash flood, right? So, and back then, like back 50 years ago, there were very few glacial lakes. But if you look at satellite images now, or actually get on a flight from Chengdu in China to like Kathmandu, you'll see like thousands of glacial lakes that are being formed because the ice is melting, but it doesn't have an outlet to um, drain itself, right? And the problem with glacial lake, scientists call it glacial lake outburst flooding or GLOF, is that a trigger event like an earthquake can overflow it, right? Or if there's a huge piece of ice that falls in a moraine glacier, then like that's going to overflow the water. So these people in this community were very scared that there was going to be a flood because of the earthquake and aftershocks were still coming and it would wipe out the entire village in the night. So that was sort of like, you know, and then I actually, I mean, you can imagine I spent the night there. <laughs> I was terrified. Oh my God. Um, but that was my first experience. I was like 17, 16 years old, right? Um, so the mountains were like formidable and essential part of why I began this journey of climate change and came to university. I studied economics. And I think when you go to a university like NYU, you focus quite a lot on finance and econ. And for me, I spent two summers working uh, corporate law. I did environmental law and climate law and policy and finance. And I really had a good experience. But um, throughout this time, I kind of felt like I was losing touch with the reality of what it means to live with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a very natural thing for me to sort of like be like, well, I've done my work in high level office job. And I was in New York. I was, I was trying to do an internship at a uh, hedge fund, actually looking at carbon credits in Latin America. Um, and yeah, I decided I was better off going to Nepal, living in the mountains, um, <laughs> getting reality. Wow. And yeah, it was a good decision. Super cool. Um, I do. I am curious about the the beginning of that journey, the step from high school and taking the two years. So, does do the mountains and does water have a a feeling or or symbolic meaning to you from earlier in your life before you took that step that that made you be like I want to I want to in in some sense dedicate my life to this if you're spending three months in the mountains and and now today you're continually studying and and working with several organizations to understand this issue and see how it like you said in the long term you can make sure that it is affecting everyone that's affected by it in the best way possible. So if you could touch on the earlier part. Yeah, well, I think there are two points that I'd like to mention. The first is, I think the answer to your question is no. (laughs) I spent a lot of time in nature uh, growing up and mountains were these mystical things that you saw from afar. And um, whenever like you had friends from abroad coming over, I I did my high school exchange in Holland, for example. Um, That's my uh, freshman year in high school and when I went to Holland I still remember everyone was asking me about mountains uh, because that's what they hear about Nepal in the media right and I'd never been and I'd been like I'd trekked like in the hills and I'd seen the mountains but I'd never like been so close to the mountains so I think it was something that was always on the back of my head it wasn't something that sort of sparked my interest in climate in the beginning uh, but I was very much in nature I was a boy scout and I spent a lot of time in nature and stuff you know, like volunteering at the zoo. I loved animals and I loved planting trees. I planted a lot of trees growing up. But I think this experience that I talked about earlier was that pivotal moment where I understood that the environmental crisis is something, but the climate crisis is something very different. And this is a distinction that not a lot of people make, right? They look at like climate environment as a very, like is the same thing, but they're different. 
do they reinforce each other 100%, right? Like, and, and we need to tackle both. And I'm not saying one's more important than the other, but I think my understanding of climate change really came through uh, that gap here. And I, I would be lying, you know, if I said like it was a higher calling from within ever since I was a small boy, it wasn't. Um, but I did have that sort of connection with nature that made me connect, connect more. And I think this leads to the second point, right? And which is something I'm very vocal about and I've written a lot about is the need for young people to be connected to nature. And we're increasingly living in a world where urbanization's booming, right? Urban spaces are booming, which has gone in such a pace that nature is really being kicked out of cities. Um, and it's very disheartening to know that there are like kids growing up and they've never been to nature or they've never seen a tree or they've never hugged a tree or they've never been on a hike, right? And it's increasingly problematic in many of like developing countries where you see slums and you see very uh, rapid urbanization and massive population growth. And it's very difficult to sort of like even think of giving basic necessities to young young children, like let alone, you know, like letting them spend time in nature. So this is something I really care about because I feel like for me, the reason I care about climate and the environment so much is because I have a personal relationship with nature mm. and I understand and I value what that means. And this okay. is something I really worry about uh, for the next generation. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that. Um, in terms of, I think there's one point in there that I would love to learn about and kind of expand on because I think it's something I don't know much about and definitely the way you described it was really just on point was the difference between climate and the environment and how you said they almost have like a reverse relationship which sounds like they're very interconnected where the climate affects the environment, the environment affects the climate. So could you talk about what that dynamic is and what the importance of it is? Yeah, no, uh, it's a very important conversation. And primarily because for me, when I was 17, 18, and I was thinking of the climate crisis, I, was, I used to be very overwhelmed. And I think this is a sentiment a lot of young people feel um, these days, right? Because it's so overwhelming. Uh, you, you, you need to fix the world. You need to like stop emissions. And I think that's a counter argument to a lot of people on conscious consumerism or individual action is that, well, our action's not enough, right? So why should I do it when oil companies are still pumping out oil and making money? Yeah. Um, and I think for me, sort of breaking down what climate change meant and what are the things that I could actually get myself involved in was really, really helpful. And I think for that to happen, understanding the distinction between the environmental crisis and the climate crisis was important. And I can, I think the best way to sort of explain this distinction is by giving examples, right? So we're seeing a massive extinction species, extinction of species, right? So we're losing species. And some of this is because of direct impacts of climate change, right? So loss of habitat and stuff, but also a lot of other things are just because of like people killing rhinos for and elephants for illegal smuggling of tusks, yeah. right? And ivory. Um, so, so it's very interesting in terms of the ivory trade, for example, is not necessarily a climate crisis. It's an ecological disaster and an environmental crisis, which is obviously linked to climate. But climate change is really coming from increase in anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, right? And I think for me, that distinction of, well, we can fix climate change, more or less mitigate climate change, not fix, by reducing the emissions, right? So it's very straightforward, to be honest with you. It's, you reduce emissions, um, and we're going to sort of limit 
long-term climate change. We've already, we're already well into climate change and the climate is changing, right? So we're seeing all these impacts. Um, the other example for uh, is pollution, uh, river pollution, plastic pollution. So a lot of rivers are polluted, but plastic is that causing climate change? Not necessarily. Indirectly, yes, because plastics also made from fossil fuel and oil and you know everything has a carbon footprint. But cleaning the river doesn't really solve climate change, does it? Um, so I think there needs to be a distinction, especially for people who are trying to like look at concrete ways of intervening um, to understand that environmental crisis um, is a bit different, but also, you know, trying to find connections with the climate crisis. Definitely. Uh, thank you for those two examples, because I think it really puts in, you, you, could, you could see a river that's, you know, has, has things in it, which is much easier to see and understand. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to pull back a bit and get back into water and the things that are affected by the changing water crisis. And I think some of the things you mentioned at the beginning that we haven't touched on yet are, there's two things. The first one, which I would love to get into now is gender. So you said that with the Himalayans, um, their climate is happening, climate crisis is happening and, and the temperatures are rising and water is melting. And so it's gonna affect the people that are living near the Himalayan mountains and obviously everyone, but these people in particular. And so with that situation, those dynamics, you said that it's going to impact gender relations. And I think that it's super interesting. I'm excited to hear what you're going to say, because I think a lot of these issues, especially in the UN sustainable development goals, there's 17 of them, but they really are super interconnected. I think it's something that is understood within the industry but i think even within different sectors of the industry it's like not fully fully working together to be like how does this thing impact this thing and it sounds like you guys have gotten a head start on seeing those dynamics so i'd love to hear about how does how does water melting impact gender dynamics yeah, 100%. And I think that's one of my criticisms of the sustainable development goals, right? Like in, in sort of, I think it's it's a great thing and creating these like very concrete targets. It's been great, but somehow the interconnectedness between these targets has been lost. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's not a criticism of the SDGs, but the criticism of sort of like how the SDGs have been carried forward. Um, and you're 100% spot on, right? Like there are massive co-benefits of developing projects that are targeting water security. They can have co-benefits on many other SDG goals. The Asian Development Bank has done some really good work on how do you estimate and standardize and quantify these co-benefits of development projects in other SDGs. Um, with regards to water and gender, I'm not a water and gender expert, so um, just putting it out there. But what do, what we've seen and what I've sort of from my understanding and the geopolitics initiative with NYU, we've done a lot of work on gender and water. So if someone's interested in this, I, I'd recommend them to go to the website and look into the resources. We have podcasts and webinars and articles. But essentially, we have gender roles, right? And predominantly in South Asia where women tend um, or historically have tended to be involved in household chores and cooking um, and men have sort of moved out to do jobs of all, all sorts. And what's happening with that is if a village doesn't have water resource, then it's the women who have to travel for another two hours to an adjacent village and get water from there. So the problem starts there. 
when that happens, if there's a child that needs to be taught or they need to do the homework, and if it's the woman who's carrying all the burden of cooking as well as looking after the child, then the child's not getting enough time for school, right? And it's a, it's a cascading effect. And I'd like to see a spillover effect. It's like when you take two hours off from a mother, then that two hours to fetch water is two hours away from a little child, mm. right? So essentially, I mean, the water crisis is really interesting and then the role it has and exacerbates gender roles in Southeast, especially, um, it's very problematic. But, you know, you've also seen similar things in other parts of the world, including in Africa and Latin America, um, where women um, tend to be more exposed to the impacts of water security, water insecurity, sorry, and climate change compared to men. Uh, and to be honest with you, even in terms of real action against climate change, like women do have a lot more that they can offer, right? Because they're so grounded to the realities um, of like living communities and stuff. Um, so for a long time, this has been portrayed from a very negative lens, to be honest, and women were looked at as victims of climate change and water insecurity, but especially these days, and I think that's where the geopolitics initiative has been good, is we've been highlighting a lot of stories of how women have been doing good work in this and have sort of like taken them out of victims, but also like as champions. And there's a colleague, I actually forgot her name, but she, she, has been involved with us uh, quite a bit and she's based in India, but she coined this term called women water warriors. Um, and so we've done a lot of work on highlighting, you know, like what are the good stories of women coming together, working with each other and making sure that like, like they can deal with the impacts that they're having, like they're exploring and solutions of how do you fix this issue, right? So does that mean storage? Like if you look at Ladakh, for example, they've created uh, something called water towers and it's it's nature-based solutions but they're like creating water towers so in months where there's no rainfall they have like water storage systems so they can fetch water from there right so there's a lot of solutions and there's a lot of innovation happening as well and i think um that's something the initiative for example is trying to focus on is rather than trying to victimize or or look at a crisis and then be depressed look at the solutions and see what are the things that can be replicated to other communities but yeah it, it's, it's a big issue right yeah, I love that idea of being focused on the solutions because at the end of the day, a lot of the, the subject we're talking about and the subjects that I talk about on this podcast are things where people are talking about problems they are really passionate about solving. But I think the problem is, isn't, and in my opinion, should be a big part of the conversation, but also a small part of the conversation because mm-hmm. otherwise focusing on that is just, it. At the end of the day, like we talked about before hopping on this podcast, you're about to go run a marathon and how running the marathon is so much about the mental will. And I feel like a lot of these problems come down to the mental will of wanting to focus on the, on the solutions and, and acknowledge the problem, but really be like, let's get this thing done or situated or better understood. So really love that. And just quickly, um, if you could just provide, like if someone's listening, they're like, I want to, I want to learn more about those resources about gender equality. Where should they go? Like what, where is, where's some resources that they could tap into? Yeah. Well, they could always reach out to me. And I think, especially if they're interested in the Himalayan region, um, I'd be more than happy to connect them to the right people, right? Academics, practitioners, people working in grassroots. Um, There's some great foundations working in the grassroots level um, to sort of like the United Nations women. UN Women does a lot of work on that. The EC mode, uh, which is headquartered in Kathmandu, they do a lot of work on gender, livelihood and water. Uh, so I think there's an entire spectrum of organizations working on this issue as well as researchers and academics. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, I guess those are some help. 
for resources, ACMOD, UN Women, uh, some grassroots organizations. I don't have them on top of my head right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm also really happy to sort of like, if anyone reaches out to me on LinkedIn or email, whatever, I'm also happy to, you know, put them in touch with the right people. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, another thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of the stakeholders that, or this stakeholder that the water crisis affects is, and it was really, when I was researching for this episode, it really was apparent in the fact that how the water crisis is really related to geopolitics. And mm. I think that at the end of the day, a lot of things in this world are related to geopolitics because it's all about power dynamics and, and what things get attention, what things don't get attention. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about how the work that you're focused on is really intertwined with the geopolitics of the region. Hmm. Yeah, and look, I mean, this this is the geopolitics and ecology. The, the two aspects really also come from the expertise of the professors who are leading this initiative, right? Like I'm a research fellow, but they're professors of, you know, like worked on geopolitics and on ecology all their lives, and, and that's a research. And it, and it's fascinating for me as a young person to sort of like see how these interplay. Geopolitics, obviously, China, India, India, Pakistan, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Bangladesh. I mean, this is like a hot spot. Yeah. <laughs> countries don't talk to each other. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're in an environment where countries don't talk to each other, but the rivers are connected. The river that flows through China goes through Nepal and goes to India. So a lot of downstream communities, for example, really rely on knowledge created and data sharing from upstream communities, right? So if there's a glacial lake that bursts up in Tibet, then there needs to be early warning systems so that the Nepali downstream communities know it well in advance that they can like leave. And it's the same thing with India, right? So, so obviously the water is something very interesting because these rivers don't care about geopolitics. They don't care about boundaries. <laughs> um, and they're, they don't care, right? Like they don't give a damn. Um, so you're working in this environment where countries don't really talk to each other about this, heavily geopolitics involved. Um, whereas in reality, the ecology is really dependent on that. Right. And more often than not, you see the geopolitics conversation with these international relations theorists and stuff talking about it from a very theoretical lens of, OK, we can understand this crisis from this point of view. Right. And I did a bit of IR for my master's before I left IR and moved to econ again. Um, but it was very interesting for me to sort of like listen to some of the ways through which they try to explain geopolitics and explain like IR theories and, and sort of cooperation between countries. Um, and then the ecologists, for example, have been working in different silos of like conservation uh, and on groundwork and stuff, right? And someone had to connect the two in terms of looking at it from a very interdisciplinary lens of what does geopolitics mean um, to local people and to the ecology? And why do people involved in geopolitics and politics need to care about the ecology? And, and vice versa, right? Because even for people working in ecology, they can't work in isolation, uh, not knowing sort of like how the geopolitics are interplaying with, with all of this. Um, yeah, so I think that's like a very brief background of why we, we look at both issues and oftentimes we wanna combine the two and create interdisciplinary lens. The other thing that I also briefly wanna to touch upon, it might be interesting is water is always looked at as a very engineering challenge, right? So you, you're looking at countries that 
where engineering, civil engineering is a big thing. Like China, for example, it's very technocratic. Like if you look at even the Chinese Communist Party, like there's a lot of civil engineers. Mm-hmm. India, famous for its engineers. And so is Pakistan, right? So all these countries have really looked at water and rivers and dams as an engineering solution. It's like it's like a dream project for an engineer to like be able to maneuver the rivers and, and do things with it. Um, and I think a lot of problems also come from that is because it's looked at as a challenge or it's looked at as a dream project um, of like, what can we do with this? Whereas in reality, we should not be doing anything with it. Like we should <laughs> let the river run its course, right? Yeah. Like, and, and live in harmony with rivers and nature. And I think that's the other thing that that's also what we're trying to argue is that, well, we shouldn't look at water as just as a resource. We should look at water as an integral component of nature. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, water is looked at as a resource that can be abused. Uh, whereas in reality, that's just so fundamentally flawed. Yeah. And I think that as you're saying that, and it, it, it connected the dots on two things for me, which is earlier you said how something that you write about and that you preach in a sense is the, the need for younger people and everyone, but specifically younger people to be more connected to nature and how mm. this concept of water, which is essential to nature, is crossing boundaries, ge- geopolitical boundaries of countries that have tension. And I think it's a super cool idea that the thing that is actually connecting these countries is nature itself. And like, mm-hmm. if countries can then try to look at this problem in, in nature with, with a view of let's, let's come together, bring us together, over this thing and nature is kind of the underlying thing doing it, which is a super cool idea and possibility and potential. Um, one thing I would love to wrap up with a question that I ask every guest. And essentially the idea is why does all this matter? Why does your work matter? Mm. Yeah, and that's a, that's a hard question. Um, I can give give a very easy answer and say, well, the climate crisis is undoubtedly one of the most important challenges we're facing, right? And having a conversation where water fits into the climate crisis, um, because if you follow like climate conversations, if you follow COP, for example, water doesn't get the attention it deserves. Whereas water is most often the connecting dot um, to the climate crisis, right? Like why do you think the Himalayas are melting 0.3 to 0.7 degrees Celsius faster than the world? It's because like one of the reasons is the albedo effect, right? Like when the sun's warmer, the ice is melting. And when the snow is melted and you, you see more of the snow melted and you see a black um, like mountain, right? Like the, the dark color of the mountain that's attracting more sunlight right? Because dark colors attract more sunlight and that's the albedo effect. And the dark color attracts more sunlight. It accelerates the effect of um, um, melting because then the mountain itself is hotter from the surface as well as it's attracting more sunlight, right? So like, so like it's very interesting in terms of how you look at water. Uh, and I think the climate community in general needs to look at water from a more or, or if I may say, like, give more attention to water. I think this is couldn't be more timelier because, you know, like, all these countries are announcing net zero targets and a lot of these net zero targets are looking at carbon emissions, right? And it's become of an accounting strategy of, like, how do you account it to be net zero? 
uh, although you really ignore like the overall reduction in emissions, right? So it's an accounting strategy for a lot of countries. Um, then the question is like, what does a net zero world look like in terms of water resources? What does net zero even mean for water? Like, is it just about emissions? Is that what we care about, right? Um, so I think I think water, look, it's it's critical, it's essential for us as humanity. And I think that's why our work matters, but also our work in particular matters because we're having these awkward conversations that many organizations seem to be ignoring about, like we can't ignore the geopolitics in South Asia. We can't, we can't propose solutions and go with it and ignore the geopolitics thinking that we can't solve it. Countries need to come together. Um, so I think like that's also an interesting angle is that we as academics, um, and as an academic institution with NYU, like it has that platform of not just like having this conversation, but bringing different dimensions together, right? Like NYU has a great center on sea level rise, for example, and melting, but it's heavily focused on the sciences. So how do you bridge the science with the humanities, with the sociologists and with history and with engineering together? And I think this is really where universities can play a big role as opposed to institutions, which have a clear mandate, right? Uh, so I think that's also the other thing is that as an institution, being based at a university, you can have these difficult dialogues because you're not um, sort of like bound to by donor money and stuff. Um, so I think in many ways, this initiative in particular is bringing out important conversations and dialogue, although it may not be solving things. Uh, but yeah, I think I think dialogues are quite important as well. 100%. I think that's a, a beautiful note to end on because at the end of the day, that's that's really all this water, this water crisis and all these things are is just dialogue and people getting on the same page and seeing the problems in the same way. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story and sharing the work that you do and the insights from it. Um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Luke. And if anyone's listening to your podcast or if you know people who are looking for opportunities to be involved in water, um, we focus on the Himalayan region, but yeah, we have loads of opportunities and we always you know, welcome young people, academics. Um, we work with a lot of people from the US um, in this as well. So yeah, if anyone's listening and is interested, feel free to reach out because yeah, we're all fighting for the common, common challenge and yeah, we're all in this together. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at Why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see you all soon.